0: And if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians 6, I'll begin reading in verse 10. This passage should be familiar to the majority of you. And if not, uh, well, you're in for a treat because this is an amazing passage. Ephesians 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, Over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore And supplication to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in change, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So, let me tell you the agenda for this morning, what I'm trying to do. I'm going to use this passage in Ephesians to organize the whole message. This is technically a topical sermon, but we'll treat the passage exegetically. If that flew over your heads, that's fine. First, I also want to explain why we are taking a break from Hebrews. We've been in an an extended study of the book of Hebrews since... uh, 2018 if you can believe it and we've taken many breaks along the way but I do feel that it is important to explain why these should stand out if our commitment is to book by book verse by verse when we take a break from that it should be for a significant reason so that will actually take up the majority of our time explaining why the break and why this text and why this emphasis And then next, I want to make the case for prayer in general. And I will give you five encouragements that are in this passage. So prayer in general, to make the case for us to pray as Christians. And then I want to make the case for praying as a church, not just as individual Christians, but as a whole body together. And I will give you five encouragements to that effect. The next, I will answer seven objections, because there are many. And then I will propose four solutions, four applications, four ways forward for us. So, let's begin. I don't want to uh, presume on your time. Why the break? Why stop Hebrews we're just getting into the part that everyone's familiar with, chapter 11. We're excited about all this recounting of the stories of old. Why break? Why take a pause and go to a passage such as this? And the answer is in verse 11 of Ephesians 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, we don't, brothers and sisters. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Have you viewed the chaos of 2020 through that lens? This verse is not talking about spiritual warfare as many define it. No, the apostle is pulling back the curtain, as it were, and to help us and he's helping us see what's really going on in the world. Not just in the nooks and crannies and strange theories about angels and demons and exorcisms. He is showing us what is really happening. Every day. Every day. Back in chapter 3, he says that God is manifesting His manifold wisdom to who? The powers, the authorities, the heavenly beings. One of the themes through Ephesians is that it's not just us and Jesus in the story of salvation. God is displaying something to all beings, including the heavenly beings. Your salvation is not just about Your relationship to God. God is showing something to onlookers. The auditorium is not empty. It is filled. You and I are in it, even as we are on the stage as well in God's display of His grace. But the principalities, the powers, the cosmic forces, they are perceiving what God is doing as well. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers. And authorities in the heavenly places. The whole purpose of the church is to display God's wisdom. To both the elect angels and to the enemy and to his followers forever. So what does that have to do with the kind of year we have had so far? One of the primary ways that God shows His glorious wisdom to these heavenly beings who are onlookers, even as we see with Job in his suffering, is to allow and yes, even ordain the fierce opposition and oppression from the enemy to refine, reprove, and demonstrate the quality of our love and trust in God to the heavenly beings. God's glory is shown to them in us as we trust in Him. Imagine that. These beings have been in the presence of God who knows how long. And the way God has decided to take it up a notch in His display of His glory and wisdom to them, even the cherubim and the seraphim who stand in the presence of God, Singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. The way God has chosen in his wisdom to prove to them just how glorious he is is your trust in God and love to God through trial. We must marvel at the wisdom of God in this. It's stunning. So, in view of this chaotic year, let me ask, or we should ask, an important question. What is the real problem in the world? What things are most significant and what things are the worst things going on? Is it the pandemic or the controversy surrounding whether or not it's real? Is it the issue of masks and how effective or ineffective they are? Is it the problem of government overreach and the oppression of rights and the controversy about whether or not they are justified for the sake of public safety? Is it racial inequality and the monotonous talking past each other that happens on both sides of the issue, making finding a solution and starting a path forward almost impossible? is the biggest issue and problem the election in November and the insufferable and unnecessary binary of politics and infighting about them? And let me turn it to us. If an unbiased observer were to listen in on your conversations with your friends and your family, if, if this unbiased observer were to read all your social media posts, what would they think that you think is the most important issue going on right now? What would they say about you? What are you saying we ought to be paying attention to right now? Yet all the while, There is the Word of God. Through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is real. This is today. This is now. And we... Must see this conflict rightly in order to stand the first thing about our lives and the world around us and the world we're a part of. And when you understand this, when you understand we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, there is a malicious presence and force that we can't even begin to understand fully that is behind all of this, that gives you a heart of compassion towards those you disagree with who see things differently than you because we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But That's a whole nother sermon. Maybe to find out the biggest problem in the world and what's really uh, meritorious of our attention, maybe we should ask this. What do they want? These authorities, powers, forces. What do they want? What are they after? What are they trying to make the case? Why are they wrestling against us? What's their objective? That again would take another full sermon, but I'll just summarize uh, the whole biblical theology of this, relying a little bit on Job and also 2 Corinthians and this passage. Two answers, and they're almost the same answer. First, they want to destroy our trust and hope in God. They want to destroy it. And secondly, which is almost saying the same thing, they want to keep us from seeing and loving the glory of Christ. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the glory of Christ. That's their objective. They don't want you to see it. And in that diversion of your sight from the glory of Christ, they want your trust in and hope in God to weaken. That's what they're doing. And they seek to do it through deception in every way, even as the enemy himself is the father of lies. D-Day, what is called D-Day, the invasion of Normandy of the Allied forces, is the largest landed invasion ever to take place in human history. And in preparation for the invasion of Normandy, the Allied High Command decided that they would spend a whole year trying to deceive the German High Command. And one of the ways they did this, there were many ways, one of the ways was called uh, Operation Fortitude. And part of this operation was to send Patton to a certain place on the British Isles and to give the German high command that Patton was going to lead the invasion at Calais. But that wasn't the plan, as we know well. The Germans respected Patton, particularly because of Rommel. And so if you move Patton over here and give him uh, the inflatable tanks and all, give the, the perception that the, the invasion's going to come from over here, then all the while, the Allied High Command makes its preparations ready to invade the beaches of Normandy. Hopefully you can get a sense of why I'm using this illustration. I'll give you another one if history is not your thing. In football, there's this thing called the play fake, Okay. And what makes an offense good in their ability to pull off the play fake is to sell it. So the quarterback will take the snap from under center or in shotgun and hand it to the running back. And the running back is trained. They have drills to do this to make it seem as if he's got the football and take off running. And so the defense comes forward, the linebackers crash in. Leaving receivers wide open all the while the quarterback still has the football and passes right over all the bunched up defense. And we get a first down, etc., etc. Deception is part of conflict. And the enemy is the father of lies. They're doing this by deception. They're trying to weaken our trust in God through deception. My fear is that we have bought the play fake. We're preparing for the false invasion. In the world, we certainly see wickedness increasing. But that's inevitable. Yet in the church, we see love growing cold. Disunity being exposed and increasing. In the world we see hatred of holiness increasing. But that's inevitable. Yet in the church, we see the gospel in virtually every denomination being emptied of its life-giving, freeing, joy-causing, Christ-centered essence and made into a paltry message of self-worth and self-esteem. In the world, we see sickness, Fallenness, pain and suffering, death, injustice. How long, O Lord? Yet even this is inevitable until the world is remade on that glorious day. In the church, the place that should be the outpost of this coming kingdom... We see a pandemic, not of a virus, but of false teaching, deceptive and destructive heresies, people teetering in their commitment to Christ, apostasy, flat out falling away. And in many cases, God help us. We see a mass exodus back to the way of faith plus works. It's happening everywhere and it's deeply unsettling. We don't want to see most of it. Close our eyes and stop our ears because it's too discouraging to think about. In the world, we certainly see a crazy year, that is 2020, but years like this will be inevitable, and more so as the day draws near. Yet in the church, we see such distraction. We've planned on the lie, the false invasion The enemy has really sold and we have really bought the play fake. And I fear that many of our leaders, so many even people I still consider my heroes giving off the impression, whether they say it explicitly or not, that our wrestle is against flesh and blood. Government, laws, laws, Bill Gates, China, Russia, liberalism, the Supreme Court, the far left, etc., etc. Do we wrestle against flesh and blood or not? And again, what about you? What about us? Does your life, does your conversation, does your speech agree with the Apostle Paul here? Do we wrestle primarily, first and foremost, against, the, against flesh and blood Governors, doctors, conspiracy theorists, people who disagree with us online, Californians? Or do we really wrestle against principalities and powers? Spiritual forces of darkness in heavenly places. And I know that to say that over and over makes me sound like a crazy person. What do you think? What's the message we're sending to the world? Or are we just buying their own message about what's important and then trying to apply Christian solutions to it? For the most part, we, I believe, have bought into the playfake. And we're prepping for the fake invasion. And our enemy is so happy that we have done so. And I'm not saying I'm any better, and we'll see more of that in a bit. At this point, you might be surprised to hear that this is a sermon about prayer. <laughs> if you saw through our uh, social media presence I've been posting about, this is, the title is An, Ur- An Urgent Call to Prayer. It's in the bulletin. We didn't have a chance to print the bulletin, but that's the title. An Urgent Call for the Church to Pray. You might be saying at this point, you haven't said anything about prayer so far in this whole introduction. You haven't uh, really given us anything to land on. You haven't told us the five encouragements for personal prayer, the five encouragements to corporate prayer, or answered any of these seven objections. Don't you know lunch is coming and the kids are going to go crazy? Yes, I know but we'll make it through those quickly. I know I feel the need to be prompt, but the point is this. If we really believed the Bible in this place and what it says about our world and what our place in the world is as we sojourn, and if we really believed what Paul says here about what is really happening, what is really wrong with the world, then we would be a people who pray fervently. And that's clearly the point of this passage. Especially in view of what has happened this year. But I fear we have not. If we really believed God that ours is not the wrestle against flesh and blood, but rather against the dark evil powers over this present darkness, then we would be a broken, humble, prayerful people. But I fear we are not. Which for me proves possibly beyond doubt that we see the world in this crazy year and our suffering in it wrongly. I'm using we here to refer to the whole family of God, Christianity in general, even in our limited exposure to it. Instead of, here's here's some examples, instead of taking the opportunity to examine our ways and recommit to the centrality of prayer in the life of the church, most churches are insisting on legal rights to gather in a larger group. Instead of taking the opportunity to rebirth a culture of hospitality and discipleship and mutual encouragement and exhortation and prayer in smaller group throughout our city, even as the early church did. Instead, most churches have opted not to do that because it's just so difficult instead of repenting from our lack of a culture of raising up shepherds to care for the flock, as the need for more laborers in the field and caretakers of the flock has become so obvious, most churches have doubled down on an imbalanced and disproportionate, top-down corporate method of leadership in church life. Instead of considering our ways, and returning to the Lord. We point the finger of of condemnation at those who don't agree with our views or who see the issues in a different way. We give off the impression that the problem is them, not us. Instead of praying In faith, we have opted to wrestle against flesh and blood. And perhaps most alarmingly, instead of growing in the love of God, in the hope in Christ, and joy in the Holy Spirit, we've gotten into anxious thoughts and life patterns. And yes, I am including our church in these, and I myself, being the pastor, take full responsibility I've been preaching about these things through these months and off and on in other places and in Hebrews. And I've been pleading with people to see it this way, but it has not been clear enough. It has not been persistent enough. I have not shown this with my own life enough. I have not personally striven as deeply as I ought to have. I have not repented myself enough. In short, I have not modeled the chief shepherd, the real senior pastor of this church, as I ought to. And that makes me angry at myself, and I need your forgiveness. But by God's grace, no more of that. With the time I have left, I will make sure that you leave here fully convinced and inspired to pray as a church. So now we look at this passage again, and we ask, what encouragements to pray are there? Number one, in prayer, we are armed. In prayer, we are armed. Prayer is the means of accomplishing all the imperatives of this passage. Imperative is a fancy word for saying command. How are we to obey all the commands of Ephesians 6, 10 through 20? Through prayer. And at this point, I kind of show my colors as a nerd, but you need to get excited about participles, okay? You really, really do. And you need to read your Bible this way. When you run across a participle in the middle of a long list of commands, that's telling you how you do it. Another example, when I first saw this, it, it opened a world to me. Do not be anxious, rather, through casting your cares upon the Lord, you pursue humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon Him. That's a whole other sermon. I won't let myself go there. But in this passage, it's the same thing. Look at all these commands Be strong, put on. Take to yourself each of these pieces of armor, tons of imperatives, commands, and then at the end of it all, praying. How how is it that I, as an individual Christian, am to take upon myself the helmet of salvation or the sword of the Spirit or, or any of these things? How am I to stand in prayer? That's how you do it all. Even faith. We don't have time to look at each one. We'll focus on this. The large shield of faith would be a more literal translation there. Even faith, taking up faith, we do so prayingly. And prayer is somewhat of a gut check to see if we really have our faith in Christ together or not. Just as Jesus says to the woman at the well, he asks her, would you give me a a cup to drink? She's startled. Why do you, Jewish man, ask me for a drink? And he says, if you knew who it was. If you knew who it was who asked you for a drink, you would rather ask him and He would give you living waters. If we knew who it was, if we really understood the nature and character and love of God, if we knew who it was, standing at His right hand, interceding for us even now, we would pray so much more. You would ask Him. We can sense that God wants so much from us, demanding even so much from us from heaven. And His response to us would be, If you knew who it was who asked of you to obey in this way, you would ask him. And he would give you living water. Think of Jacob. He didn't even know he didn't even know who this guy was that he was wrestling. He says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. I just have a vague sense that you have a blessing that you can bless me with, so I'm not going to let go until you bless me. You, Christian, have infinitely more understanding of the nature and character of God than Jacob, and we let go so quickly. Even as the cry of faith in Romans 8, is to say, Abba, Father. Number two, in prayer, we are fully armed. This is important. Number one is we are armed through prayer, but number two is that we are fully armed through prayer. Imagine this, waking up in the morning, you're trying to take this scripture seriously, so you put on The helmet of salvation, the belt of truth, the readiness of the gospel of peace. You put on your feet and then you have to rush out the door and you forgot the the shield of faith. And and you forgot the sword of the spirit and you, you, you enter your day. Oh, no, I'm not fully armed. Is that what the analogy means here? No. Furthermore, there are more blessings than these. That's not why Paul uses the analogy to completely summarize the blessings that we have in Christ. The point is precisely that. All of the blessings, salvation, righteousness, truth, faith, all of it are yours in Christ. And you don't have to go through a list to make sure you're wearing all of them. If you are properly postured in your heart to Christ All of them are yours because Christ is yours. He says, praying always. that that Prayer is so much more than just asking for stuff. It, it, It exposes what our alignment of our heart is to God, seeing Him as the one who will be seen as the great gift giver, the one to whom no one has ever really given a gift. He will be gift-giver and seen as such for all eternity. He is the only real gift-giver. And if we understood that, if we saw His gift-giving posture, His grace, as it were, in Christ, we would ask so freely of anything in His name. Number three, in prayer, we stand. He says, stand therefore, It's one of the first imperatives he issues and then goes through all of the armor of God and then says, stand. And then pray. Praying. Prayingly is another way of saying it. Prayingly stand. There is a kind of life, a flavor of living that is sitting down, crouched over, bowed down, slouching and slumbering. And I'm not trying to make that seem small or difficult to avoid. We each have exhaustion, despondency, depression, sorrow, real loss and confusion. And if we let that have the dominion in our heart, even as there is the malicious presence behind it of these spiritual forces of darkness, we don't stand We're crouched, we're bending over, we're we're slumbering, weak. Yet Paul says, stand, get up and fight, is the sense of his appeal here. We must take this bold posture in the life Christ has given to us. We must have the bold assurance of faith that we talked about last week. This is why it's not really a, ba- a break from Hebrews, right? The bold assurance of faith that we discussed in Hebrews 10.39 is exactly this. The first cry of faith is to say, Abba, Father, and to appeal to Him as the great gift giver to give you everything you need for faith, holiness, righteousness, living. And how are we to change from a life of murmuring, belly aching? Whining, grumbling, even as the children of Israel were in the wandering desert. How are we to be like those of old who stood fast and through faith preserved their souls? Even as we're going to see in Hebrews 11. How are we to be like them? Ask. Pray. It's no more complicated than that. If any of you lacks wisdom, James says, and you can interpose almost every, any other spiritual blessing, if you lack faith, ask, and it will be given to you. And God will give it without finding fault. He's not begrudging in His giving of these good gifts that have been secured at the cost of the death of His Son. He who did not spare His Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He also not with Him graciously give us all things? They're yours already to ask the Father to give them to you. More strength, more faith, more solidarity with Christ. It's already yours. Ask for the Father to give them to you. We stand through prayer. A weak son or daughter, of God who comes crying abba father lord save me will stand longer and better than the one who has confidence in himself or in her own maturity or understanding number 4 in prayer we withstand it's one thing to stand to stand up to get up from our our lazy bent over Lethargic posture. And it's another thing to withstand. Withstand what? That you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Okay, so today we stand. We've gotten over our weakness. We we have faith. We're able to stand up. But what about tomorrow? What about a week from now? What if another year comes like 2020? What if it gets worse? It's going to. What about the evil day? The days are evil, but the opposition and power of Satan will come to a climax. What about that day? The day of the man of lawlessness. Are you going to be able to withstand in that day? How how do we have assurance that that yes, we will through prayer? What if the Lord's discipline becomes very burdensome? You pray. We stand and have the confidence to withstand the torrent of tomorrow and all tomorrows through prayer. Not through strategy and programs and ministries and budgets. Those are all important. But what gives you the confidence to look into the future, even as trouble approaches, just like Lady Wisdom, and to just chuckle. That's nice. I trust in the Lord. How do you have that posture? It's, it's one thing to, for me to tell you. Have that posture. Have that kind of faith in the Lord. And and it's a very fair question to say, but yeah, but how? Pray for it. Do we believe God gives these things to his children or not? Number five. In prayer, we do not drift. One of the themes of Hebrews is this idea of drifting from Christ, that we that we would loosen our grip and gradually drift away to eventual falling away. And he says, to that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. If I could offer a summary of Paul's point here, it would say something like this while praying, Persevere with prayer. It's it's kind of awkwardly constructed. Prayerfully, stand on high alert in perseverance through prayer. And he's intentionally redundant. The point is, through prayer, we will persevere if we pray. How do we resist the drift? How do we keep our hands tightly wound to Christ? Through prayer, even if you are weak in faith, and I think all of us can say, maybe with more and more frequency, if we're really honest with ourselves, that we're weak in faith, even as the father of the demon-oppressed son says to Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. It's through prayer that we address even our lack of faith. So those are five encouragements to prayer in general. And I want to now give you five encouragements to gathered prayer. Number one, we must pray together because being in Christ means we are part of his body. There's not really a place specifically to go to in verses 10 through 20 to really prove that he makes that point elsewhere in Ephesians but it comes out in the plural nature of these imperatives again I know it's grammar it's early it's the summer you shouldn't be in school right they are plural commands every single one of them I checked The idea is that you all together stand. You all together take up the shield of faith. You all together persevere in prayer. You all together prayingly do all of these things. The Texans have something right. We've got the word y'all. You can put that y'all in front of each one of these imperatives. Y'all pray. Y'all stand. It's not proper, but Greek has a y'all and it's proper for them, okay? So just working with what I've got. And furthermore, the analogy of a military or soldier is, is silly if we don't understand this as talking about a group. There is no function within the military where you're by yourself, practically. Even snipers have a spotter. You can even be a spy by yourself or an asset, as they say in the movies, right? But you've got a whole team back at Langley taking care of you, right? No, this is a Roman testudo or tortoise formation that's in view here. They're not carrying a spear. It's a sword with a large shield. They're together in a group of 10 or 20 or 30 using their shields to shield each other. And it just shows how silly our illustrations of this usually are. We, we got one single guy standing there with a shield and a sword. He's all exposed. Like 95% of the 360 degree sphere is exposed. But what the image that should be there is a, is a group holding up their shields here and on the side holding it here and on the other side holding it here. And together the unit is victorious, even as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. If you drop your shield, it's not just you that's going to get a bolt, a fiery dart. It's going to go through you or in front of you to your compadre. You can't obey these commands in isolation. Period. When the unit fails, all take responsibility. And when the unit succeeds, all are victorious. So we have to pray together to just basically obey the command. Number two, we must pray together because prayer is hard. (laughs) Okay? I'm not here to tell you that I've figured out the secret that just ushers us into a life of persistent prayer. It almost annoys me when people tell me that they've got it all together in their prayer life because I'm tempted to feel envious. And on a certain level, I don't believe them because prayer is hard. He says, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Making supplication for all the saints. We, in a sense, carry one another's Burdens. Paul himself, it, understand this. This, this, is, this is something you need to understand. Paul says in Romans 15:30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. He's he's Paul prays a lot, okay? And he looks at his prayer life and all that he has before him, and he, he's he's maybe nervous. It's not enough. I can't cover everything that needs to be prayed for. And so he writes, he makes sure to, to, sure to write in Romans to the Roman church that he had never met in person before. Hey, you join in praying for me because I need it. And strive, this language of striving is, is contest. It's It's conflict. It's hard. It's difficult. Paul says in Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And one of the ways, the most basic and easy easy and direct ways you can bear one another's burdens is to pray with them. Because prayer is hard. Number three. We must pray together because there is just so much prayer that needs to be done. Paul says, "All four times." Praying at all times in the spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. If I'm reading that, and I'm just seeing it as a command to myself, I'm discouraged. If I'm being honest. Someone tells me to always be doing something, it's automatically discouraging, right? But the idea here, if I could give you an illustration, is like a group of bike riders. It's actually, the official term is actually a peloton, a group of people who ride a bike together. They're somewhat organized. There's this concept of drafting or slipstreaming, where the lead biker cuts through the air and if you're riding behind that lead biker somewhere in the middle or even at the back drag is reduced down to 5 to 10% that's a huge number like maybe for some of you that just went right over like numbers aren't your thing but if you understand drag being reduced down to 5 to 10% that means it's it's a drop of 90 to 95% You're being carried along, as it were, by the lead biker. And each person takes a turn leading the group. That's what happens when we pray. There's just so much that needs to be prayed about. There's so far we need to go in this group, to use the analogy again. And and if I'm by myself and I'm just pedaling, 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 and there's wind and there's air resistance, I'm not going to make it. You need to take turns. And in a sense, understand this. You get credit when other people are praying and you listen with your mind and in faith say from the heart, not necessarily verbally, amen. So even as you are, the same thing happens with the Psalms. Like as you're reading his prayer, the psalmist's prayer, if your heart joins that with an amen, that prayer is then yours. As beautiful as it is. It's yours. So that's what happens in the gathered prayers. We are listening. You don't have to necessarily say anything, but you get credit as that prayer being yours as you pray, or as the other prays. And sometimes understand this. This is an aside, but I need pulled along as well. Some of the intensity of my appeal to you to pray is because I feel the need for someone to take the lead and pull me along and reduce some drag for me. Okay, so feel that when I appeal to you. It's not just, y'all got to be at prayer meeting. It's, I need help. To, this is a lot that we need to pray for. And I feel the responsibility, just as a Christian, that there is so much that needs to be prayed for that I just can't even get to, and I need help to be pulled along. Number four, we must pray together because God often brings, often brings widespread Restoration and revival in response to widespread prayer. Paul says at the end of this section, and some people leave it off when they're discussing it, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul was appointed by Christ himself to be the apostle to bring in the Gentiles. The ingathering of the Gentiles is a major event on the calendar of God's redemptive history. And yet, he says to the Ephesian congregation, pray for me so that this can happen. God had already ordained it. God had already shown that this was his plan. He had given Paul the gifts that he needed. He had prepared him, as it were, from his upbringing to learn the law and then show him Christ. And yet, that far along in his ministry, he says, I need your prayers to ensure I do this thing that God has already ordained for me to do. That's amazing. There are many examples of this through the Bible. I'll have to skip a few of them for sake of time, but I'll give you one. When God says to the Son prophetically, ask, and I will give you the nations as a heritage in Psalm 2. Jesus, though, himself says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. Because the harvest is white. The fields are white for the harvest, but the laborers are few. God has already decreed that Christ, the Son of Man, will receive the nations as a heritage. Yet, Jesus himself tells his disciples, pray to the Master so that he will send workers to accomplish this very thing that he has already ordained and that will surely take place. And Jesus is there on the earth. And he says, you, disciples, you, Peter, you, John, you, Mark, you pray that the master, my father, would send workers. Even as Paul says, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations. I'll give you one more. This is too good to pass up. The day of the Lord is fixed in one way. God knows when He's going to send the Son. But in Luke 18, Jesus says this... And will not God give justice to His elect who cry to Him day and night? Will He delay long over them? Peter says that we are, in a sense, hastening the arrival of the day of the Lord as we cry out to Him. God has already ordained it. He's already planned it. But the next great event on God's calendar of redemptive history is the return of the Lord. And it will be... Whether we can make it make sense in our minds or not in response to the prayers of His people. Number five, we must pray together because it is the ordained means of bringing about God's will even in specific lives. We'll go back to the example of Paul for this. The body of Christ together praying for specific people. Not just great epochs of redemptive history, but Paul's own personal life. The way that he's going to obey God and the plan that God had given to him for his life was, in a sense, to be drawn across the finish line by the prayers of the saints. Do you see that privilege and responsibility in your relationships with your brothers and sisters that for God's will to be accomplished in their life, the plan that He has set in motion from before all time for them is going to be accomplished as you drag them across the finish line? You can go to Ephesians chapter 3 and see the grand prayer that Paul prays there, to see that even the most basic things that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith, even that Paul is praying for them, that it would happen. So now, let's go through quickly some objections. won't spend a ton of time here. This could be a whole sermon in and of itself. I'm not dealing with silly objections. There are many of those. I'm treating you as mature people. and So these are objections that I have felt in my own life and that still rattle around. The first is, we don't have time to go to the actual passage, but I shouldn't pray in public. You can go to Jesus' teaching about prayer on the Sermon on the Mount. Don't stand on the street corners to be seen by others. Rather, go into your secret chamber and pray, and the Lord who sees in secret will reward you. Someone could read that, like myself, and say, well, I don't even know if, if I should pray in front of people. Well, first, Jesus did not... Break his own command he prays publicly all the time, especially and in a key way for the resurrection of Lazarus. He says to the Father, "I know that you always hear me, but I said this i'm I'm praying verbally in the hearing of others, so that they would know that you sent me. so it is proper to pray with the right motives, and that's what he's addressing with. Comparing them to the the hypocrites. Don't be like the hypocrites. Have the right motives. And yes, you can pray in front of other people. The early church itself could be called a prayer meeting. Acts 4.14 All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Before the Spirit was given, they were devoting themselves to prayer together for seven to ten days, depending on how you count. And at the end of that seven to ten days at Pentecost, God sends the Spirit. And they're, coincidentally, all together praying, most likely. So yes, in answer to that objection, I'm not supposed to pray in public. Jesus says, you know, secret room, whatever. Uh, That's not what he's saying. We are supposed to pray together. Number two, God already knows what we need. He even says it in Matthew 6. Don't pile up words because your father already knows what you need before you ask. This is a real struggle. It's not a silly objection. And to this, I would briefly say, it is true, God is sovereign and has ordained the end from the beginning. However, The way that he is ordained to bring about all of these things that he's already ordained are through the prayers of his people. Because, here's the reason, it's one thing to just say that. The reason that is the case is because he knows that the greatest blessing is himself. Let's say you need something. You need healing. You need a new job, whatever it is. And you don't pray. And you get it anyway. Does your heart in that moment think to thank God? As much as it would if you prayed fervently that God would give you the job or the healing or whatever it is. And he blesses you with it. God's greatest blessing to you is himself. So there are blessings. and We don't have time to explore this. This is, again, another sermon in and of itself. But there are blessings that he specifically withholds from you. He is so eager to bless. But he knows that he himself and your joy in him is the greatest blessing. So he will withhold that until you align your heart properly to him and ask. Because he would rather you suffer. Yes. I said it. He would rather you suffer than to have a nice, easy life and to not feel your dependency on Him. He's preparing our hearts for heaven. One of the ways He does that is answering prayer. Even though He is ordained at the end from the beginning. Number three of the objections. I have a great personal prayer life. Already mentioned a little bit about that. But if we would want our prayer life to be like Christ's, and you can read every prayer that Jesus prays through the whole New Testament, all of them either begin or end or in the middle somewhere address the needs of his followers. So if your prayer life is not oriented around the needs of your brothers and sisters, primarily in the need that they have for you to help them pray better, then it's not Christ-like prayer. Number four, we'll move on. Nothing changes. Anybody? I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray. My heart breaks. And I get more and more fragile and less and less confident. and And I pray and I pray and I pray and nothing happens. And here we have the parable from Luke 18. He told them a parable to the effect, that they should always pray and not lose heart. And our heart towards the Father is the issue. Even as He says to the older brother, Son, everything I have is yours. It's already yours. (laughs) It just depends on when the Lord is going to give it to you. Number five, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at praying in public. I can't speak in front of people. Well, take to heart Christ's commands to not pile up words. Some of the most powerful prayers I've ever heard were very, very short. Let other Christians bear your burden of not being able to pray very well in public. Number six, we already know what to do. We got all these commands and things that we got to do. God has given us the Great Commission. We know what we're supposed to do. Why should we spend a ton of time praying? This is a problem for our camp, I think. Part of the answer to this is that one of the things we're commanded to do very frequently is to pray, it is a command. And I agree that we shouldn't piddle around and think that we got make to make everything super spiritual and try to figure out God's will when He's made it very clear what it is. I agree. However, if you do anything not in prayer, or you, if you do not do things prayerfully, then you're in disobedience. Number seven. We can't be so inwardly focused. Can't just close our doors and be in private and pray and pray. We got people out there who are hurting, who need the truth. We can't be so inwardly focused. I think that's a misunderstanding of how God works. It is not pray and then go, it is go prayerfully. It's like breathing. Should you breathe or should you go to work? Yes. Breathe while you go to work. Bad things will happen if you don't. Prayer is like that. Pray without ceasing, he says. That, that shouldn't be an, an oppressive command to us. It's to release us to this posture of faith in God that, that transcends all of our life experiences. It's just happening all the time. And yes, in different ways, in our secret room, together with God's people, even publicly. As long as it is not to be recognized by others. But don't stop. Do everything prayingly. So four suggestions and we'll be done. Four ways forward for us in light of this. Pray at our church or together with your brothers and sisters in this church. Come to our prayer meeting. The reason we have it is because, as you know very well, as a parent or as a professional, whatever it is, if you don't put it on the calendar, it's not going to happen. And I know that many of you cannot come to it. The time we're in is weird. I understand that. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. So I'm going to give you a way forward. If you literally cannot be here or there are health issues or whatever it is and you don't want to come on a Sunday night, and understand... Okay, this This is kind of a silly aside and i 'm sorry to give it here it 's a big sacrifice for me as a, as a cowboys fan okay like it 's not just nothing for me to show up on a Sunday evening, especially in the fall but it 's that important, okay I feel the sacrifice, but if you can 't be here on a Sunday evening, pray in your homes with other families in this church. you have full carte blanche green light to invite another family in this church, to your house on another evening, if it works better for you, and to pray together with them. Nothing crazy, not hours and hours and hours, even though Jesus says to his disciples, couldn't you have just prayed with me for one hour? But just ten. Let's do something achievable, 10 to 15 minutes, 30 minutes even of prayer for grand, 10,000-foot-level uh, prayers. In view of the fact that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. Pray those flavor of prayers with your brothers and sisters in this church. Number three, spontaneous prayer. When you are here, take opportunities to pray verbally with your brothers and sisters. You're already here. Why not take the opportunity to pray? When someone's telling you something about their week, something they're struggling with, or something that they're really happy about. Just ask. I know it will feel awkward at first. I know because this has happened to me. But just pray. Ask. Is it all right if we pray about that right now? And lastly, you're probably going to have to remove something from your life. Our culture values hustle. It's a cardinal virtue for Americans Hustle, get stuff done, knock it out of the park, just smash this day, right? You're going to excel by getting all of this stuff done, your to-do list completed. We fill it up to the max to the point where we're so exhausted and we can't let other people in to see that we're so exhausted. You're going to have to cut something out. Adding something is overwhelming. And understand for me, the bar is set very high for doing things organized here at the church. The bar is set like this. If it it would be a better use of the time for mom and dad and kids to be home all together, then we're not going to ask people to come and do it on a consistent basis. But I know for a fact that we all fill up our lives anyway. So to add prayer as a consistent thing in your life, you're going to to have to let something else go. Especially if you want it to be with your brothers and sisters. And the motive behind all of this, as we close, is standing strong, taking part in making the mystery of the gospel known. Even as the Lord commands us to pray, Your kingdom come. The days are evil. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are oppressed on every side. So our cry of faith is your kingdom come. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your name, Father, be glorified and famous everywhere, especially in our lives and homes. Empower us to represent you and your gospel well in the world, especially in our suffering and endurance through trial. Your kingdom come, Lord. Your will be done, Lord, on earth as it is in heaven. May you send the Christ. May he return quickly. And while we wait, may we seek and build your kingdom. May we also repent and obey your commands humbly and invite others to do the same. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us the things we need for life and make us content with what you give. Train our hearts to be generous and grateful and glad with all your blessings. Forgive us our debts, Lord. We are undone without your forgiveness and we need it daily. Please forgive us for all our many sins. We do not deserve your forgiveness. Show us the glory of your grace in your mercy. Even as we, Lord, forgive our debtors, give us the strength and the will to release Bitterness and forgive those who have wronged us. Change our hearts to see that there is more glory in being forgiven and giving forgiveness. Than the pain of being sinned against. Lead us not into temptation, Lord, but deliver us from evil. Our hearts are prone to wonder. Please guide and lead us in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Defend us from the enemy and the sinful desires of our hearts. For yours is the kingdom, Lord, and the power and the glory forever. Help us, Lord, rest our hope in the return of Christ and look toward that day with joy. Help us live and think in a way that sees and acknowledges you as king of the world today, resting in you as our very strong fortress and defender and deliverer. Lord, we trust that you have heard our prayers. Please help us trust your goodwill towards us more. For the sake of your great name, in Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.